ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well then, the best laid plans of Minefield presenters gang after lay, I suppose we should say. Welcome to the Minefield. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. For Lead Ali's My Name, Scott Stevens is my co-host. We had a plan. Uh, we were determined to stick to that plan. We've been blown off course of that plan by events. What am I talking about? Well, Scott is kind of here to explain. What a fortnight, Scott. Look, it has been. Hey, Waleed. Um... One of the most difficult, and I think in many respects, trying 10 days of my professional life, just in terms of what it is that we've had to wrestle with, um, what it is we've had to, I guess, morally try to get our arms around, and the extent to which I think many of us have felt cold, is cold the right word? How best do we offer comfort to those who have had hopes or lives severely diminished, taken, affected. Um, the first of those hopes, we were wanting to do a show about the referendum result this week. We had planned to do it. We were determined, to do, we to, were do determined to, to do it. Look, we've decided not to, and it's a decision that we didn't take lightly. Uh, I guess it should be said that I think we both found the call to mourning and silence on the part of a good many indigenous leaders and campaigners. Uh, we found that in itself, morally compelling or unavoidable, uh, or if we were going to ignore it, there's going to have to be a pretty good reason for it. But I think the other reason, lead, it more has to do with the nature of referenda themselves. There is something about the straight up and down yes or no, the absolute choice that's put to a people, which means that nuance is almost by design ironed out, flattened out. There is no yes, but, and there is no, no, although there is just yes or no, which means what it is that is communicated in the act of yes or communicated in the act of no is not only up to interpretation and communication, but it's also wide open for reprisals, which is just a way of saying, I think we all need a little bit of time to work out what this meant, what this meant, and then what we can intelligently and constructively say about it. Is that good enough justification, do you think? Yeah, I, I think the way you've thought about that's slightly different to the way I have, but we've ended up in a similar place. That said... What you've explained is kind of the reason that we didn't do this week's show last week. Mm, interesting. Because the other big news event, as I'm sure you're aware, is the violence that's taking place in the Middle East now. And we spoke for hours about whether or not to do a show on that. We decided not to last week. And we were going to plough ahead with dealing with the referendum the way we planned. Now that plan's gone out the window. But I would say, you may disagree with this, what that has allowed us to do is perhaps distill an approach to discussing it mm. that wasn't mere replication of what everyone else was saying. And that's not a criticism of what everyone else was saying, just that no. our task is was, or at least we felt, was to try to come up with something a bit different. Hopefully Make helpful. Hopefully Maybe, helpful. yeah. Maybe. Or at least a kind of a step slightly removed so that it might assist with how you might want to go about thinking about this yeah. um, rather than merely what you will think about this. Mm. And I think in the end that extra week has probably helped us distill. I know we had very lengthy and 
even quite painful conversations yeah. about it to arrive at that point. And so I feel a bit torn, I'll admit, you know, that I'm still not sure we've got it right. We'll probably find out at the end of this show. I'm still not sure we shouldn't be discussing the referendum this week. Um, I think on balance that's probably right. Mm. Anyway, I, I don't know that we should be giving people a full blow-by-blow briefing or debrief of our production process, no. which is normally zero, but there's been much more than that lately. Um, Look, so, but I think it's important uh, yeah. context because it, it helps frame, I think, how we're approaching this and therefore perhaps how people might choose to listen to it. Yeah, I think that that's right. And I, let me just say on top of that, I hope that people who have been listening to the show for a while, you know, we've been going for nine years now, I can say with all seriousness, there is not a show that I have not at some level or another wrestled deeply with. Um, there have been many, many, many that I've agonized over. Um, I hope people feel that we never either mail it in or treat things of extraordinary seriousness with a degree of glibness or skim across the surface of things or try to shift things onto territory that we ourselves feel more comfortable with. Um, but this particular topic, what we're doing today, the violence in southern Israel, the violence in Gaza, this has been a wrestling of the soul and a point of real, I'm not sure I can quite call it contention, but you and I have knocked heads over this, over a few salient issues. I still have a few bruises on my forehead. <laughs> um, and uh, we're approaching this, I think, with the degree, I believe the only term I can find is reverence, knowing that this is not something to be discussed lightly. And so for that reason, uh, let me just mention two more brief things before we get underway. One is, this is a serious topic, and it's a difficult topic. And for anybody who's been following some of the coverage, for anyone who's had the misfortune of trying to verify some of the footage of the claims that are being made, this is a heartbreaking topic that tests us to our moral fiber. Um, so I think listeners really need to know themselves. They need to know what their limits are. They need to know where they are this week and what it is that they can handle. Um, so there's, there's just a, a warning that we're testing the limits of human comprehension <laughs> in what we're discussing today. The other thing... Well, as events are. That's As events are. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But the point you make is well made. This show goes out as a podcast as well. It's not compulsory to listen to it now. Mm. You could listen to it in a month or not at all if you're not up to it. But I think it's important for people to realize that. Sometimes I think, this is another show, by the way, but I think we think because events are serious or they're in the news that it somehow imposes upon us a, an obligation to engage with them in that moment, mm. to form views about them in that moment yeah. and so on. Yeah. And I think this is one of the most misguided axioms of contemporary society. I agree. Even in a thing as serious as this, some of the stuff I've seen about compulsion to speech and, and this particularly flying around on social media, I think is just wrongheaded. I, I understand the impulse and I understand there's a compulsion for some people to speak. Um, I'm not sure total silence is the right response mm, from everyone, but that's very different from imposing it as an individual obligation on every single person. Okay. Um uh, look, let me, it feels kind of weird to say this now, uh, but we just, you know, housekeeping. Um, coming up in early November, we're going to do another one of our little excursions into some extraordinary piece of human achievement, some work of art. In this particular case, it's 
Virginia Woolf's incomparable 1929 fictional essay entitled A Room of One's Own. It's about 100 pages long, divided up over six chapters or six walks that the essential character takes. It's supposed to be about women and writing, but what it's really about is power and privilege, callousness and contempt. It's a remarkable book. It's going to be a terrific conversation with the Australian author, Charlotte Wood, who's going to guide us on this remarkable journey. So I hope uh, at the beginning of November, you'll join us for that. Okay. It actually sounds like prevarication now. We're trying to put off. (laughs) All right. So uh, on 7th of October, during the festival of Simchat Torah, uh, 1,500 Hamas Terrorists, militants broke through a security barrier. They made their way through a series of towns of kibbutzim along highways and thoroughfares, essentially murdering civilians wherever they found them and in whatever state they found them. So one of the initial lots of reporting that many of us were horrified by was the violence that we saw at a music festival held in the desert, effectively in a little oasis surrounded by trees, where 260 concert goers, uh, festival goers, were gunned down, uh, many, many uh, others taken away as hostages. But then as the day crept on, for me, this was early Sunday morning, uh, as the day crept on, uh, other footage began to come to light of people being murdered in their houses, children's in their bed, of the bodies of babies being discarded on the sides of roads, of people in cars and in, at bus stops, of parents being killed in front of their children and children in front of their parents. As the day went on even further still, We've seen footage of people's social media accounts being used to broadcast their own torture and, in some cases, death. It's been an extraordinary assault on on our sensibilities. People have responded to these attacks with a kind of mute incomprehension a kind of shock. Am I really seeing what I'm seeing? And I think to some extent it wasn't helped by the fact that all sorts of either exaggerated or erroneous claims were also making their way around so that otherwise well-meaning, good-faith citizens tried to take it upon themselves, or journalists even, tried to take it upon themselves to do their best to verify what was true and false. And if there's one thing you did not want to do over the days immediately following the 7th of October, was to verify what was true and false. Mm. Especially when there's frames from video games going around as yeah, yeah. as video evidence and all kinds of things, yeah. So it kind of, it almost paralyzed the imagination. And it was striking to me how many people, almost in a sense of powerlessness, just wanted to do what they could to reach out in some kind of flimsy or tentative display of solidarity or co-mourning or something. It wasn't surprising that world leaders described this in language we rarely hear from world leaders. Anthony Albanese called it an act of terror of calculated, 
pitiless brutality. Joe Biden called it indiscriminate evil, a violation of every code of human morality. The New South Wales government made the decision to, much as they did the victims of Russia's attack on Ukraine, they lit up the opera house in the colors of the Israeli flag. Um, so we have that happening. And then at the same time, and so again, if we just want to be really precise about the timing of all this, by Sunday afternoon, calls were being made for there to be rallies or demonstrations in the Sydney CBD, in places in Western Sydney, other places around the world, to, let's just say, to remind people of the extent of the nature and oftentimes of the relative invisibility of Palestinian suffering. Palestinian suffering at the hands of the state of Israel, yes, and Palestinian suffering over many, many decades that has not enjoyed the publicity that, say, the suffering of these Israelis did, and that doesn't often enjoy the same pledges of solidarity offered by world leaders. And so we've had something kind of extraordinary, Willie, and I've been really wrestling with how to grapple with it myself. I'm going to cede the stage to you in a second, because if you want me to say anything further about the wrestle, I'm happy to, but maybe just not yet. I find that we've had two bifurcated, almost incommensurable responses, responses that are very, very difficult to reconcile. We have what I think is properly described as a visceral human response to scenes of almost incomprehensible cruelty, malice, violence. At the same time, we have a similarly human response. Also, I would have to say quite visceral, a response that is wounded and bruised from years, decades even, of humiliations and failure to recognize. Failure to recognize not in the political sense, but in the moral sense. Failure to recognize. Can I just add, I just yes, add on the failure please, to recognize? Please, please. It is that, but I think it's also something else, which is a sense that that suffering frequently meets a narrative of legitimation. So, What do you mean? It's not just that it's not acknowledged and there isn't mourning. It's that there is an official, perhaps even quasi-bureaucratic language of, um, I want to find a better word than justification, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. There's a kind of tacit licensing of the broad dimensions of okay. that suffering. Sure. At least that's the way I think a lot of, if not just Palestinians, but people who are sympathetic to their cause are inclined to see it. In other words, so, unfortunate and possibly bad, but not necessarily wrong with a capital W. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there'll be people listening to this show, I'm aware, who would agree with that assessment. But I just think it's important to be clear that that's part of the thing that I think is being railed against here. It's the lack of recognition. It's the lack of 
mourning. It's all of that, but it's more than that. It's a it's a sense that there's something being licensed against them. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. No, I I think that's I think that's important. I would say on that point that one of the things that I found troubling, and I think I'm probably fair to say that this is one of the main things that you and I have have disagreed about, and this may be due to my own incomprehension. Uh, this may be because, just to be perfectly honest, Waleed, I have found the last 10 days humanly excruciating. Um, I'll, I'll confess I've not slept a great deal. <laughs> I've not eaten a great deal. And I found the whole experience haunting, and maybe some of this sort of overdetermines some of my reflections. But there are moments of human tragedy, of human suffering, that threaten to suffocate the imagination. There's something about, and, and, and maybe this is getting really close to the center of our topic. There is something about the fact of footage of people in their homes killed, children in their beds killed, people going about quotidian life killed. There's something about the ordinariness of it that means that it's so easy to imagine oneself in that situation. This is one of the reasons that horror films, for instance, so often take place in people's homes. There's something about the horror that takes place in a home that accentuates, that exacerbates, that makes the horror truly monstrous because it's not where you would expect it. Well, the wild pendulum swing, right? So um, that's why the music festival, I think, was so evocative. It's true. It's true. Especially in a place like Australia where they're quite popular. A lot of people, they can imagine themselves in that scenario. And I might have told you this before. I spoke to someone who works in theatre once. They were talking about screenwriting and they said, or actually playwriting, and they said, if you want to have a tragic scene, the way you heighten the drama is by beginning on a really cheerful note. Mm. Everyone's having a great time. It's a party. And then there's a fight, but the fight becomes so much more dramatic because the beginning of the scene was this scene of joy. And I'm not at all saying this is theatre, but that's part of what adds to the shock. Mm. This was a scene of the very opposite of what it ended up being in like the most galling and and vivid way. And for that reason, you're right. It It takes on a certain sharpness a certain horror that is what did you say something about the imagination i mean for me it tends to suffocate the imagination suffocate the imagination yeah it's probably not a bad description it it shuts down so many of our faculties immediately i think Mm. the more i reflected on this there was a further dimension i think you know if missiles from hamas had struck the town of Sidorot and annihilated it. Let's say the same number of people died. Or missiles hit Kibbutz Berri. And again, the same number of people died in the same places, lying on their beds, in their living rooms, enjoying television, whatever it was. The shock wouldn't be the same. The sense of moral suffocation wouldn't be the same. It was. Yeah, do you know how I've, how I've found it helpful to think about this mm, is please. to remove it from this conflict. Yes. And try to do thought experiments, right? So for example, I am 
I have been and am still a strong critic of the invasion of Iraq. Mm. And one of the reasons, I mean, there's lots of reasons I had a problem with that, but one of the most galling aspects of it to me is the enormous civilian death toll. Estimates range wildly from like 180,000 through to a million, right? And I have no idea where the truth is. And part of the reason we don't know is because our government's never bothered to try to count them or keep track of them. But suppose instead of the civilian death toll occurring that way through shock and awe and a military invasion from the sky, a kind of um, killing at a distance, suppose the death toll was half of whatever it was, but it had been achieved by um, Australian or American soldiers going house to house Mm. and just slaughtering Mm. civilians. Mm. Even though the death toll is lower, it somehow, would be somehow of magnitude worse. Yeah, the moral calculus right. gets shifted because of the personalism. There, yes, there is something about the nature of it. I agree. The kind of deliberateness of the target. And here I'm very cautious because I don't want to wander into just sweeping everything under the collateral damage rug, which happens far too easily and far too often. And I, I think will become the nub of our conversation in a sec. Mm. But it's important to think of it, to reckon with what we're dealing with here. It's not merely the totting up of civilian casualties. It's not merely that. Mm. It's something else. Mm. There was another civilian casualty, for example, in America this week. With I don't know if you yes, I did. heard about this, but the, the six-year-old Palestinian kid who was stabbed. Yep. 20-something times, by his landlord. Yep. Simply for being Palestinian. This is in the aftermath of this attack. Now, that man's being charged on, well, they're throwing the full book at him. So I guess we'll see what becomes of, of the accused. But that sort of attack is far deeper. It carries something with it that is far more direct um, and of a different moral register mm. than that same kid being killed a different, even if unconscionable way. It's mm, true. That is at a distance depersonalized or, or something like that. I think we. I think when we you add malice, I think when you add malice or cruelty, and I think even more than that, when you add the element of glee or of taunting the humiliated in the act of killing, or or taunting the totally dominated, knowing that they are entirely powerless, that their lives will be taken from them, and there is nothing that they can do, and nonetheless, nonetheless, their would-be executor is finding the entire thing uproariously funny, which we saw over the course of the last... There's there's something, I think, the homeliness, the, the personalism, uh, and that added element of malice or glee. I think you're right. It tips the moral register, um, and it adds to that sense of moral trauma of shock that I think many of us felt. Can I just mention just one last thing though, Willie, that, so I think one of the things in the aftermath of the 7th of October attacks, one of the things that I think some of us longed for and craved was, I've used the term suffocation a few times deliberately. I think what we wanted was space to breathe. Howard Jacobson, one of my favorite novelists, the great British Jewish writer, 
says that time is the space we give to let pity breathe. And I think there was something about that. It wasn't the fact that these were simply Israeli deaths. It was the deaths themselves and the manner in which their lives were taken. Compounded, I think, by the fact that these were Israeli deaths. Compounded by the fact that the residents in these towns in Kibbutzim, these are not settlers. These are not religious zealots. These are not provocateurs. Uh, These are people who live where they live because of a degree of sympathy that they feel towards those who are holed up inside Gaza. There are all sorts of things about this that just make the entire thing unbearably, unbearably sad. And I think wanting the time to breathe, to mourn, to get one's bearings, to be able to stay silent before being caught up in claims and counterclaims and the overarching historical or cultural uh, or religious narrative sweeping it over. I think there was something about that that made the sudden interplay, and I do mean sudden, I mean Sunday afternoon, Monday evening, the sudden interplay of counter-demonstration. The term that I've reached for is indecent. I think it's a mild enough term to say there was something not fitting about it from where I stood. There's something not fitting about it from where people who I know stood trying to get their bearings, trying to grieve. Now, as soon as I say that, though, that's denying a degree. I I realize this. It's denying a degree of the profound humanity of those who said, but these things have been happening to us over a longer period of time, over the course of decades, humiliation, powerlessness in the face of domination, forms of killing, some of them violent, as we've seen in the West Bank, even just in February this year, near the town of Huara, where, uh, where what can only be described as a Jewish pogrom took place. But also sometimes impersonal, state-mediated, bombs from the sky, or troops on the other side of a border crossing. Or via a siege. Or via a siege, yes. That's right. And even a, a blockade, although that the is a different a bit, the empirical a bit argument. Different, but yeah. yeah. And this is, I think, where... I mean, we can get into all the parry and thrust about protests and whatever, but I think it all boils down in the end to a fundamental question, which is, what do we do about the fact that a different mode of death... And a different agent. And a different agent, yeah. And a different agent, yes. But a different mode of death executed in a different way over a different time period brings not just a different response, Mm. but such a radically different response. Mm. So, I mean, there's no question. If you reduce the violence to body counts... There's no question the Palestinian body count is much, much higher than the Israeli one. There's just no getting around that. What is, I think, so troubling from the Palestinian perspective is that because it it occurs in such a a drip-feed way, because it occurs with 
not always state sanction, we should be clear, but some of it with state sanction. Because it has a narrative sitting alongside of it that is an official narrative of security and securitization. So, um, you know, it is a nation state defending itself. Mm. It is rendered invisible. It's not that people fail to judge, although that might be part of the claim. It is that people fail to think of judging. <laughs> it doesn't enter the consciousness in the same way. Mm-hmm. And so I've heard this, by the way, I should, you know, I should disclose, I have personal connections with people on both sides of the wall, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As do I. Uh, I know someone whose cousin is one of the hostages that was taken mm. by Hamas. I know people with family in Gaza. You know, maybe let me distill it this way. I know people in Israel who are saying we still have to go to so many funerals because some of the human bodies, many of them, were so badly mutilated Mm. and disfigured Mm. that they're only now figuring out who they were so that they can have a funeral. And I know someone showed me a text exchange with their auntie, and their auntie said to them, I just hope they bomb us when we're asleep. Mm. I tell this story not to shock or whatever, but actually I think that is a really good distillation of the difference in the violence that's being suffered. Mm-hmm. The Israeli story there is one of such horror, a kind of depraved horror. But it's not the story of well, I'm just expecting to get bombed. It's now a matter of choosing how I die. And I just hope we're all asleep at the time. That's not a story. That Gazan voice is not a voice I think. I've never heard an Israeli say anything quite like that. Hmm. They'll say things like, uh, we can't live like this. Or we don't feel safe. Hmm. Um, there are bombs going off around like but, but, that's, large, but that's often underwritten by a degree of hard-won defiance, let me just put it. I, I don't mean defiance in, in a kind of morally culpable way, but there's a resilience, there's a defiance there that comes with the achievements of the last 75 years. Right, yes, that's true. And I think this is an important thing to factor in. This is where the, this specific conflict does matter, because what that attack in Israel would have looked like through Jewish eyes, given the history of the past century, Yes. I mean, there's a resonance there that, you know, and a a deep, a depth of penetration that, I, you know, I think we would actually have to stop and get our heads around to yes, understand. Exactly. Right. But what I mean is the insecurity that's felt there is a kind of, it's not an inevitable insecurity, a sort of all, you mentioned the word suffocation before. It's not a suffocating insecurity in quite the same way as you get on the Palestinian side of the wall. And it's the nature of the suffocation. It's the nature of the the sense of inevitability. And then the fact that that just becomes then subject to endless political argumentation, which means something perhaps to people like us at a remove and perhaps people who are in the elites of these you know, institutions and governments or whatever who are thrashing these, but to the people living day to day. But it's not that that's that kind of everyday suffering is unrecognized. It's that it's unrecognizable Mm. in public discourse. 
And so you have civilian misery of a different kind. And if we're putting it in its bluntest terms, we don't value them the same. The question is, should we? <laughs> can I just add, before we bring in our guest, yep. can I add one small qualification to this? Yep. Is, it, is it a qualification? Maybe not. Um, you and I have both been critical a long time ago of the way that the media uses images and the way that images yep. are often used as a way of ma almost making a point beyond moral argumentation. You know, picture says a thousand words, whatever. Well, images lie all the time. They distort <laughs> our, our moral sensibilities all the time. Uh, as someone who has to spend a good deal of time every day trawling through our image libraries, our image banks for images that are appropriate to use, I would say, Willie, nine out of ten of images that are used of Gaza are of rubble. Yeah. With one or two people standing helplessly in the middle of it. So they're impersonal. And you get the sense this is just how people in Gaza live. So devastation, what's new? Destruction, what's new? I think there's something extremely, not just distorting about that, and it is a distortion of what Gaza looks like, but it's also morally distorting. So what we have then come to see over the last few days, and I think this changes everything, in the same way that bloodstains on the floor of a child's bedroom give us the sense of that this person was killed in the company of the person who loves them most. This life was valued by people in this world. We've begun to see images that for me are morally compelling of parents trying to pull the lifeless body of their children out of rubble and rush them to hospital. Of family members desperately, desperately trying to give comfort to a loved one, a spouse who may well be beyond comfort or help. In other words, whatever the impersonal means of the destruction wrought, you suddenly see the lives of people through the eyes of those who love them and in the context of the relationships that mattered most to them. I just wonder if one of the deepest problems here isn't a religious or a geopolitical problem or the extent to which we justify the unjustifiable through the lenses of a capital C cause or capital H history, but rather we fundamentally fail to see the lives of people who have died through the eyes of those to whom those lives, lives were mm. indescribably precious. Yeah. And one becomes more accessible than the other. Mm. We have a guest to try to help us navigate this. Scott. Uh, Susie Kilmister is a senior lecturer in philosophy at Monash University. She works primarily on the meaning of human dignity and the causes of dehumanization. Susie, even, I mean, you're the perfect person to talk to. We've kept you waiting far too long. Where do you want to take us? Um, I, I might start with a caveat that I am I am not an expert on Middle Eastern politics. So so a lot of what I'm going to say is, is going to abstract away, I think, from the details of what we've been hearing about there. And I do know, you know, philosophers do love their abstractions and there, there is a risk with that of um, potentially 
trivialising or not not taking morally seriously enough the details that really do matter. So insofar as I'm abstracting it, it's due to to a lack of expertise rather than a feeling that the details don't in fact matter to, Mm. to moral consideration. But I think where I want to pick up is is that discussion Walid and Scott you are having about the type of death and what that, I guess, means, what that communicates and how we ought to respond mm. to it. So in a lot of my work, I'm thinking about how do we recognise one another as fellow human beings and, and how do we um, not just respond to, but I want to say create an equal value for all human lives. And I do think that that question of how our treatment of one another gives value to one another's lives is a potentially useful framing for thinking about our different reactions to these different kinds of atrocities. Um, So if we think about, you're talking about the kind of very personal, interpersonal, almost intimate, horrifying, you know, slaughter that, that we saw happen in Israel and the way that that is deeply dehumanizing because it it involves a kind of contempt. Mm. Um, and if we think about this in terms of the way our interactions can give value or fail to give value or constitute a, a denial of value of another human life, that deep contempt, um, that intimate contempt mm. is a very, very kind of powerful tool we have for for um, dehumanising and devaluing another person's life. So, Can I ask you something y- about that though, Susie? Yeah. If you want to knock it away, knock it away. Mm. But... This is something that's always struck me powerfully about the various reflections of someone like, say, Avishai Margalit on the one hand, Mm -hmm. and say someone like James Baldwin on the other. Mm -hmm. They were both convinced that the inhumanity with which one human being treats another human being, yes, it is an expression of contempt, and contempt is an expression of a fundamental disposition that says this person who I'm facing, this person who I'm abusing, this person who I'm killing doesn't have a moral claim on me the same way that another human being would. But they both insisted that that dehumanizing contemptuousness isn't fundamentally a denial of another human being's human status, but rather an attempt almost to convince themselves what they already know to be true. In other words, by being contemptuous, They're trying to enact a kind of dehumanizing conceit, whereas what they are perhaps most terrified of is that this person really is my brother. This person really is my sister. This person really is my equal. Yeah, so I tend to think about dehumanization less in, I guess, psychological terms of whether or not someone literally sees someone else as as less than human or other than human. Um, I think it's an interesting question. I'll leave it for the psychologist. But I tend to think of it more in terms of acts that actually attempt to excommunicate one another from the human community. Um, So I tend to think of humanity as something that we kind of create. In the same way we might think of nationality as a community that we we kind of grant to one another. I think we can, we can fruitfully think of humanity that way too. But then there's certain things that we can do to one another that um, signal a, a lack of belonging, a lack of fellow community. So if we think about the, the kind of individual violations that way, it's this very, very powerful signal communication message that that person doesn't belong. Where I think, where I was going with that though, and where I might tentatively disagree maybe with some of what Scott and Wally were saying, I very much agree with the idea that that kind of individual personalised assault, it carries a different moral register from, you know, the kind of abstract bombings, from the siege, from things like that. 
Where I think I might step apart is to think that the latter is any less dehumanising. Um, oh, to be clear, and, I don't disagree with what you've just said. Yeah, mm. and that and that I'm very, very cautious about attempting to kind of rank, rank the horrors, no, rank no. the atrocities. So when I look at the, some of the literature, the philosophical literature on dehumanisation, the kind of psychological aspect tends to get prioritised, I think, um, tends to get more attention. And I think the kinds of visceral intimate acts get a lot more attention, torture, slavery, you know, the the kinds of things we saw in Israel. Um, In my own work, I've tried to argue that as important as those things are, there's a kind of dehumanisation that comes from indifference as well, from a failure to collectively acknowledge that certain people's lives matter. So so whether or not it's, uh, you know, state-sanctioned bombing or, or just indifference to natural disasters, whatever the case may be, how we do and don't respond to the kind of suffering of individuals is a way of demonstrating whether or not we value their lives. So when I think about some of the, the demonstrations and the protests that have been happening over the last week or so, around, um, you know, standing up in support of Palestine. And, and I know there have been elements of those that, you know, need to be condemned in the loudest possible terms, those elements mm. that have taken the opportunity to just, you know, push forward anti-Semitic views. But the, and which were condemned even by the organisers. Absolutely, no, absolutely. But I think if we think of those protests as a way of attempting to do a kind of re-evaluation, I suppose, of lives that haven't been valued and haven't been valued not just by those necessarily in the immediate geographical vicinity, but haven't been valued by the global community and haven't been valued by international institutions whose job, in a sense, it is to value all human lives. So I tend to see these kind of protests as a response to, I guess, a perception that certain lives haven't been given the kind of currency that they ought to have. They haven't been valued in public demonstrations of, of whose lives matter to the same extent. So where I think all this becomes unbelievably difficult is we're talking about the kind of time frames involved and not having time to kind of grieve and mourn. Um, the only appropriate response, I think, to what was happening in Israel is a kind of collective global horror. That's the only... There's geopolitical responses that need to be made, but as kind of private citizens, as private individuals... We, in a sense, need to try to revalue those lives and revalue not just the lives of the individuals that were lost, but the lives of those who share an identity, um, because those kind of attacks are an attempt to reduce the value of the lives of everyone who shares in that identity. So, we, so we're going to need to have that collective response, that collective revaluation. And then, when events happen so quickly, um, when there's such a rapid existential threat to the people in Gaza. Part of what I think is so tragic about the way the events have unfolded is the way in which that crowded out that time for for a kind of global collective mourning for the lives lost in Israel, which isn't to say that there shouldn't have been a kind of global response standing up and saying we need to value the lives of those in Palestine too, because that in a sense is also called for. Mm. It's very hard to do those things at the same time. Amidst the maelstrom. Amidst the maelstrom. Yeah. And maybe one final thing to add on that, thinking about I guess the natures of the different kinds of dehumanization that I'm very resistant to trying to rank, but there is a different, there's a difference in kind and a difference in moral register, as we were saying, between the, the kind of personalized contemptuous slaughter and the kind of indifferent bombing. Um, the fact that those, I think, occupy this different moral register might call for different kinds of response. And what I mean here is, is if we think of them as different ways of dehumanizing, we might then try to think about, well, how do we rehumanize mm. as a response to the particular kind of dehumanization that's happening here? Um, I don't have a, a kind of quick, clean answer to that, but I do think thinking about 
thinking about them as different forms of dehumanisation isn't an invitation to rank them, but might be an invitation to think about what kinds of collective response might be best suited to kind of countering the particular forms of dehumanisation we've seen in those so, contexts. And this is interesting because the problem as I see it is that official language and official institutions, perhaps a better word than official is conventional, is far more suited to one form of humanisation and, and recognition than the other. So you're seeing this play out because immediately Israel's response, which involves a siege that cuts off water, food, medical supplies, that makes hospitals very difficult to function. Then we see the story of a hospital blowing up and an initial response about how exactly and who was to blame and so on. But that sort of response, you get the odd statement from the United Nations, for example, that will say, we think this is a war crime. At the very least, it could be. But you will never get that sort of response fully registered in the mouths of governments, certainly not governments that are in any way allied to Israel. Right? There'll be calls for restraint, so on. There might be a whole lot of back-channeling that's going on that we don't get to see. Mm. And I suspect that has been a pretty important dimension to all this. Possibly. But, yeah. but if you're watching this yes, in the, the public dimension... The communicative domain, dimension of it is really troubling. Yeah, that's a good I way agree. of putting it, the communicative element of it. What you're seeing is... If you're a victim of horrific, unconventional violence, the response is simple and easy and it's emotionally laden. If you're a victim of conventionally calibrated violence, even if that oversteps certain markers, and I know Israel will argue it doesn't and so on, but perhaps that argument is the point, right? Mm -hmm. These things become officially arguable then the humanisation process becomes very difficult mm. to register. It's very difficult to express in any way that means anything. And so while I take Scott's point that the nature of the violence in Israel was so horrific that it commands a certain silence and an absolute response, the truth is they're never decoupled from their narratives. They just, they just never are. The other thought experiment I've been thinking of is, Let's say Ukrainians or Ukraine somehow did exactly this sort of attack that Hamas did in Russia. There would be horror at the attack. I don't know that the Opera House would light up in Russian colours. Why? And this is not to come up with some kind of equivalence between Russia and Israel. That's not my point here. My point is it wouldn't because we would immediately attach that attack to a narrative about Ukraine. Why? Because we have a certain sympathy to it. I just disagree completely, Waleed. Maybe, Do you really may, think that would have happened? Maybe you wouldn't have the opera house lighting up in the colours of Russia because of other things that have taken place, which I'm not entirely sure can be described as being on the same level or the same degree of brutality as what Russia has inflicted uh, in various places in Ukraine. But more than that, Ukraine itself would immediately lose the moral justness of its cause in resistance. It would be subject to massive international censure. Well, massive, that might be right, Scott, but that, yeah. that's not my argument. My argument is it would be discussed and treated differently. So it's not that it would retain the kind of support it's got. It's that we would find ourselves incapable of separating it from the broader context in which it happened, right? Now, you can say that's a correct or incorrect response. I'll leave that for you to conclude. My point is... That's what we would instinctively do. 
I think I agree that, that it would be experienced very differently, but I think not necessarily inappropriately to the extent that thinking about the broader kind of context, what the attack on Israelis meant in a kind of broader sense of whose lives are valued globally, if we take a longer time frame, is just a different kind of thing than, than it would be for Russia because of the Holocaust. And yes, so, I, so I, I think that there's a, you know, thinking about what what an appropriate, and, I, and I'll, I'll just leave aside whether I think the lighting up and the, the colour is the appropriate thing to do or not, I, I, I don't know enough. What I feel more confident of is that the fact that this happened to Jewish people, this happened in Israel, the way that this happened does call for a different kind of response because the global community needs to be responding in light of the way in which Jewish people have been historically dehumanised in the most brutal possible ways. So I think we can't separate that, and it might be problematic to separate that. Where yeah, it, by the way, I'm not saying that it, I, I accept that. All I'm saying is do you see how the story is irrevocably and inextricably attached to it? Absolutely. So that whatever we might think about how important it is to isolate this because it taps into a new register or it moves into a new moral register, how important we think that might be, we never do that. We're probably incapable of doing that. There is always a story we're attaching to it one way or another. And in some ways, this becomes an argument over which story should prevail. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you were talking before about who can we identify with? And, you know, those of us, you know, living in middle-class comfort in Australia, very easy to identify with people at a music festival, Um, very easy to picture ourselves as victims of those kind. Very difficult to picture ourselves, for me anyway, to picture myself, you know, living under a siege, living with the constant threat of bombs, living without water. Incredibly difficult. And I think that inability sometimes, the difficulty we have of imagining ourselves into those circumstances also helps explain some of our some of our responses. And I think, you know, people are often incredibly nervous about saying things that will be heard as devaluing others' lives. And mm-hmm. I think that, and again, these different moral registers of different kinds of horrors we can maybe inappropriately take less care about the kind of things that we might say about Gaza and Palestine um, because we're less sensitive potentially to the dehumanising effects mm. of what we're saying. Whereas I think there's a, we're often very sensitive, ought to be very sensitive, to the ways in which, because of the historical contexts, um, things that we say about, about Israel and certainly things that, that could be read as justifying what happened you know, there's a lot of caution there. Time is the other big element, though, isn't it? Mm-hmm, I mean, something that happens all at once becomes much more horrific to us, assuming no other political attachments, than something that happens over a long period of time. The comparison point I often think of is how many people did the Soviet Union kill? Mm. And how many people did the Nazis kill? But there's something about the Nazis live in an infamy that the Soviet Union doesn't. There might be political, ideological reasons for that, but the Soviet thing was extended. It was... Mm, there's something else. Mechanical. I'm, I'm going to flag and a future a, show on that. I, there, there's something uh, else going on there that we need to interrogate. Yeah. But I also think there's something depersonalized as well. There's, there's a time frame, and I think there's also the, the impersonality of it. And this comes mm. back to this, the kind of nature of the deaths as well. I think that we... It's so much easier to recognize the dehumanizing effects of a particular individual. I mean, Scott, you talked about the, the imagery of a baby's blood on the floor. I mean, we, mm. we just see that. Um, images of buildings collapsed. We don't 
see that. It's much harder to to see how that is a form of dehumanisation unless you're living in it, unless you really kind of force yourself to remember that there are there are individuals in there, there are babies under there. And so this issue about the images and which images lead our news stories, which images we kind of invited to to kind of frame our understanding around, I think can be incredibly important in terms of recognising the humanity of the situation. And we're not always very good about that. And, and, and the media's not always, you know, I think, helping the situation with the kind of imagery they choose to lead with. Well, there's no doubt we've failed in this show. Um, <laughs> that was inevitably going to be the case. It's nothing to do with you, Susie. <laughs> well, I came in probably expecting probably the only failure, saving yes. grace in it. Um, and there's no doubt we'll hear about all the various ways that we've failed, which is fair enough. All I can say is thank you for mm. helping us along the way. Um, and there's so much here that maybe we should tease out a little bit more in detail over time. Um, it's an unenviable task that we gave you, Susie, so thank you. <laughs> I wouldn't say it was a pleasure, but uh, these are important conversations to at least be starting, mm. um, even if we can't resolve them here. Susie Kilmister, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at Monash University, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We're at an end for this week. We'll be back next. See you then. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.